0: You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast as heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. Coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on the Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellows, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. We will be joined uh, momentarily by John Nichols of The Nation magazine concerning some uh, new news about Scott Walker, governor of Wisconsin, and, uh, well, exposing yet another lie from this guy who uh, seems to me to be a sociopath. And normally I would just ignore Republican sociopaths, but this guy has or at least had a very real possibility of obtaining the Republican nomination for the 2016 election. We will see if that happens. He seems to be sinking rapidly in the polls. Talk a little bit about that later in the in the broadcast Uh, and some very good news. Speaking of polls, some very good news Some really good news, some surprisingly good news for Bernie Sanders fans. We'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show as well. Uh, A lot ahead. First, some breaking news just as we go to air, breaking from uh, from AP. Former President Jimmy Carter has announced that he has been diagnosed with cancer. He gave a brief statement uh, on Wednesday saying, quote, a "Recent liver surgery revealed that I have cancer that is now in other parts of my body. I will be rearranging my schedule as necessary so I can undergo treatment by physicians at Emory Healthcare. The statement makes clear that Carter's cancer is now widely spread. But not where it originated, or even that, uh, or even if that is known at this point, where it originated. Carter, of course, is uh, the 39th president of the United States. He is 90 years old. So, uh, our best wishes uh, to Jimmy Carter and his family. Uh, very disturbing to hear that today. For some reason, uh, he is of course 90 years old, but he has been very active. Uh, In all sorts of things, including uh, with the Carter Center fighting for democracy around the world, interestingly enough, the Carter Center will not monitor elections in the U.S. because they have certain rules, certain minimum standards before they will deploy uh, uh, Carter Center officials to oversee elections. And guess what? The United States of America does not meet those minimum standards for the Carter Center to oversee elections. Uh, Anyway, our best uh, wishes to him, Uh, and we'll uh, keep our eye on that uh, story, I'm sure, in the coming days and weeks. Speaking of health insurance, actually, before we get to John Nichols, there's just some fact-checking I have to do. I hate having to do this, but it's got to be done. Someone's got to do it, uh, apparently. And a lot of times when I do these uh, fact-checks, it it drives uh, people uh, crazy. They don't like the facts. Some people, you know, and this is people who otherwise agree with me on a lot of things. One of those things is on health care. Speaking of health care, I know a lot of progressives do not like the Affordable Care Act, do not like Obamacare. I joined them in not liking Obamacare. I, too, would prefer to see a single payer Medicare for all type system. And even while the fight was going on to pass Obamacare, it used to drive me crazy because they were talking about passing you know, health care, getting health care for millions of Americans. Well, no, they're getting health care insurance for millions of Americans. A lot of Americans are still going to have to pay for it, and it's costly. Now, that said, this is what got passed. The Affordable Care Act, that's what got passed for now. And it is for what it is intended to do, a screaming success. And we have more evidence uh, to, that, uh, to that end today. The number of people without health insurance continues to decline and has dropped by 15.8 million, or one-third, since 2013 uh, when the Affordable Care Act uh, kicked in in full or near full. The decline occurred as major provisions of the Affordable Care Act took effect in 2013. The law expanded coverage through Medicaid and through subsidies for private insurance, which, by the way, is obscene. Those private insurance companies should be put out of business. But that said, $15.8 million is the drop in the uninsured numbers in this country since Obamacare came into effect. Uh, That's pretty amazing. In a recent in a report on uh, on its findings, the National Center for Health Statistics said that the proportion of the population without insurance had declined by five percentage points to nine point two percent in the first quarter of this year alone. Among people 18 to 64, the numbers who were insured dropped by about one third to twenty five point five million in the first quarter of this year. That is compared to 39.6 uninsured back in 2013. And among children under age 18, uh, the number of uninsured declined to 3.4 million from 4.8 million back in 2013. So these are good numbers, no matter what you feel about that bill. Uh, And and we can fight about that bill. We can fight about that law. But let us uh, agree on the facts, on the demonstrable, independently verifiable facts. In states that expanded Medicaid under Obamacare, 10.6, uh, 10.6% of people aged uh, 18 to 64 were uninsured in the first quarter of this year. That is down from 18.4%. So that's a drop of almost 8% in states where they expanded Medicaid as uh, the Affordable Care Act calls for since 2013. In states that chose not to expand Medicaid, 16.8% of uh, adults were uninsured in the first quarter of uh, this year. That's down from 22.7% in 2013. So the drop uh, has not dropped nearly as much, but it has still dropped. A separate study issued this week by Gallup, organiz- by the, uh, by Gallup uh, found that Texas... Hey, Des,
1: <laughs> talking to you,
0: your state of Texas... Yeah. ...found that uh, Texas was the only state is the only state left where at least 20% of the people were still uninsured. Way to go, Texas.
1: Freedom is for the free. You're free to get sick.
0: (sighs) Yep, apparently. By contrast, uh, it said, uh, the Gallup organization said, in 2013, people without coverage accounted for at least 20% of the population in 14 different states. So now only Texas, ain't you proud, Desi, only Texas, has 20% of its uh, population without access to health care via health insurance of some form or another.
1: Well, somebody has to fill out the bottom of the list.
0: Yes, and it's uh, let's leave it to Texas. Uh, speaking also of uh, Obamacare, American women have saved more than $1.4 billion on birth control since the Affordable Care Act went into effect, according to uh, an analysis published by Health Affairs billion they have saved on birth control pills, while out-of-pocket spending on intrauterine devices has fallen 68%. Annual out-of-pocket savings were $248 for IUDs and $255 annually for oral contraceptives. The Health Affairs report found that in the six months leading up to the birth control mandate in the Affordable Care Act, pill users spent an average of $32.74 per prescription. That number has fallen to $20.37. The spending on IUDs fell even further, from $262 down to $84. That will eventually uh, fall to zero because uh, it is covered. It is covered for everybody. It's covered for all uh, American women in all of these health plans. However, some plans were grandfathered in Uh, and they have yet to comply with the new rules uh, and so forth. There's also a loophole has been found where some uh, insurers have refused to cover some types of birth control. But anyway, all good news, no matter what you think, of the Affordable Care Act and of Obamacare. Okay, speaking of fact checks, Jeb Bush uh, gave an extraordinarily propaganda-filled speech yesterday on foreign policy at the uh, Ronald Reagan library up there in uh, Simi Valley, not far from here. Uh and this guy has just I mean he's he's just been a disaster. He's been a disaster from day 1. He's been uh, since he, you know, started talking about uh, foreign policy several months ago uh, when he sat down even on the Friendly Fox News and Megan Kelly asked him knowing what we know now, would you still have invaded in Iraq? Here's what he said. On the subject of Iraq, Yeah,
2: obviously very controversial. Knowing what we know now, would you have authorized the invasion?
0: I would have. He would have. Then he went on to backtrack later on. No, I didn't mean I would have. Well, I did mean I would have, but I don't want to insult the people who died over there. All kinds of, uh, you know, ridiculous excuses for something that he should have known how to answer since he knew he was going to be running for president. He's had eight years to figure it out. He hasn't yet. He is apparently even dumber than George W. Bush, and so now he's trying to work his way out of this. He gave a speech on foreign policy at the Reagan Library, and uh, he blamed he blamed for the mess we're now seeing in Iraq with ISIS and across the Middle East. He blamed all of that not on George W. Bush for opening up for for unleashing that hornet's nest. No, he he's blaming uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. Because we weren't in Iraq long enough. That war that went on for, what, six, seven years, lost uh, more than 4,000 troops, uh, untold uh, amounts of uh, taxpayer dollars. It wasn't long enough. It wasn't uh, enough. The mistake, said Jeb Bush, was getting out too early. That premature withdrawal was the fatal error creating the void that ISIS moved in to fill. Okay, so let's talk about that premature uh, evacuation from Iraq. And I know a lot of you people know that, a lot of my listeners know this already because they're aware of facts. But if you can have Jeb Bush in August of 2015 go in there and say that uh, the reason things fell apart was because Barack Obama decided to get out too early, Uh, And and people don't understand why the troops left Iraq when they did. When, by the way, Barack Obama wanted them to stay there to his shame and discredit. Barack Obama wanted them to stay there, but Iraq wouldn't let them. Why wouldn't Iraq let them? Well, in December, in December of 2008, before Barack Obama was even in office, Bush signed a status of forces agreement. With then-Iraqi Prime Minister uh, Nouri al-Malaki at a ceremony in Baghdad, Bush proclaimed proudly, quote, the agreement provides American troops and Defense Department officials with authorizations and protections to continue supporting Iraq's democracy once the U.N. mandate expires at the end of this year. This year being 2008, before Barack Obama took office in 2009. This agreement respects the sovereignty and the and the authority of Iraq's democracy. This agreement lays out a framework for the withdrawal of American forces in Iraq, a withdrawal that is possible because of the success of the surge. We'll debate that surge issue and that fact another time, but this is what George W. Bush said December 2008. These agreements result from careful cons- consultations, With the prime minister and the officials of Iraq, as well as our diplomats and our military commanders, they represent a shared vision on the way forward in Iraq. The way forward in Iraq was for the troops to leave. According to George W. Bush in December of 2008, that would be Jeb Bush's brother, Jeb Bush's brother, who is now blaming Barack Obama for the fact that the troops left. You may be happy or sad that the troops left, but they left because George W. Bush worked out that agreement with Iraq before George W. Bush left office. I can't believe I even have to go through this again. But this is how pervasive and you know unceasing these lies are from people on the right, people who don't give a damn about lies, people who lie unapologetically. Because they think that uh, you know no one's going to call them no no one's going to call them on it not not Fox News not their Republican voters who are so stupid and brainwashed that they don't give a damn. And then of course Jeb Bush went on to say that uh, the answer is not the thirty five hundred troops that we still have in Iraq that uh, Barack Obama has uh, either left there or put in, but it is to add still more, not combat troops, not boots on the ground, but somehow. I- <laughs> embed these troops in Iraq with Iraqi troops but don't let them go to war? But what we do need is to convey that we're serious that we're determined to help local forces take back their country our unrivaled warfighters know that it is simply not enough to dispense advice and training to local forces and then send them on their way and hope for the best Canadian troops are already embedded in Iraqi units to very good effect Our soldiers and Marines need the go-ahead to do that as well, to help our partners outthink and outmaneuver the enemy. So we need to have troops on the ground to help the Iraqis outthink and outmaneuver. But no, let's not send troops back to Iraq to another war. Let's just have them sit there and, what, uh, be an inspiration for the people sitting next to them getting shot at? unbelievable uh, but you know it's Jeb Bush he's in a primary all he has to do is win over the dumb Republican voters I shouldn't even call them dumb I'll just call them misinformed and disinformed by Fox News and uh, the people who live on the right who never venture out who still accept these lies from so many years ago I hate to be the fact checker but uh, somebody's got to especially when we're talking about somebody who's running for the president of the uh, presidency of the United States. Speaking of which, Scott Walker is an unapologetic liar, and we will have more on Scott Walker and his unapologetic lies right after this on the broadcast with John Nichols. He'll be joining us momentarily. Please don't touch that dial.
2: Hi, this is Colleen Raleigh, former FBI agent and legal counsel. whistleblower featured as
0: time magazines persons of the year and you are listening to the bradcast hey this is brad do you enjoy your non-corporatized commercial free bradcast yeah me too but we need your help to stay that way Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. This is a story that came up. Well, let's let's jump right in here. Uh, Absolutely not. Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker told reporters back in June of 2012, 100 percent wrong, he said, could not be more wrong, he said. It's just more of the liberal scare tactics out there desperately trying to get the gubernatorial campaign off target. That was Scott Walker in June of 2012. When he was being asked whether he was under a criminal investigation as part of a John Doe investigation up in uh, in Wisconsin, up in the Badger State. Three months prior to that, in March of 2012, Walker had set up a legal defense fund at the time. He said the fund would be used to pay his criminal defense lawyers only, quote, to review documents and assist me in cooperating with the investigation, but he was not a target of that investigation, he said over and over again, according to Jesse Opien at the Capitol Times last week. Uh, when I saw this story, I knew there was uh, one person I had to talk to about this because we now have documents that show unabashedly that Scott Walker was lying when he said he was not under criminal investigation at that time. Journalist John Nichols writes about politics for The Nation, The Nation magazine, that is, as its Washington correspondent. He's a contributing writer for The Progressive and In These Times and the associate uh, associate editor of The Capital Times, the daily newspaper in Madison, Wisconsin. His articles have appeared in The New York Times, Chicago Tribune, dozens of other papers. He's also appeared in a number of recent excellent documentary films, including Pay to Play, Democracy's High Stakes, and Shadows of Liberty. In both of which I also appear, but I hope you will uh, not hold that against either the films nor John Nichols. He's also the author of three books, including a best selling biography of Vice President Dick Cheney, co author of five books on American democracy, media, and journalism. He joins us today from beautiful northern Wisconsin, the great state from which he hails and covers just about as well as anybody in the country. John Nichols, sir, welcome back to the broadcast.
2: Well, after that introduction, I think I should just kind of retire, right?
0: Just drop the mic. It's very generous. That's right. Very drop the generous. mic and go, my friend. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, you. I'm honored to be with you. You deserve it. And as a matter of fact, I mean, when I read that story about uh, Scott Walker, because I recall back in 2012 when he was swearing up and down that he was not the target of this investigation, so it turns out uh, Scott Walker was lying. Was he? Well,
2: that's a that's a tough word there. I mean, why would anybody think that?
0: Well, uh, what was he being investigated? Be because, yeah.
2: Well, I was just going to say it couldn't be because, you know, the key phrase in your introduction there, when you're talking about all that stuff,
0: mm-hmm.
2: is you know, he created a legal defense fund to pay his criminal defense lawyers. Right. Right. Yeah. And and yet they made it sound like he was doing paperwork, you know, or like these guys were just doing they're gonna help me to review documents.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounded like you'd
2: hired a couple of clerks, right? Yeah. You know, maybe an intern to help me review, make sure I dot some eyes across some teeth. No, the guys he hired were top lawyers in the area of criminal defense. They were lawyers who dealt with grand jury investigations and John Doe investigations into really bad things. Mm-hmm. You don't hire lawyers with that background unless you, you know, you think there's something serious going on, right? <laughs> well, yes. And so, people said back in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Boy, this sure looks serious. I mean, you know, it sure looks real. And Scott Walker constantly, constantly said, "Nope, nothing, nothing to see here." And he has done that throughout all of these inquiries. Remember. A number of his aides, mm-hmm. close aides, people he's worked with very, very closely for a long period of time, mm-hmm. have been indicted. Some have been jailed. Some have been, um, you know, continue to be subject of inquiries, or at least have been up until recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is very serious stuff. And yet he, he has said all along, first off, I'm not a subject of it. I'm not a part of it. I have no idea what's going on. And then, secondly, constantly tried to shut everything down to say, oh, no, 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 that was all adjudicated, that was all dealt with, that's all ancient history, that's all the past. You know, here's the problem. The problem of it is that at every turn, when he said that he's not part of it, it doesn't matter, it's all ancient history, that's invariably Mm -hmm. called into question by the official documents by information that comes out along the way. And what's perhaps most troubling about this to those of us who know Scott Walker is that he's not stupid. Scott Walker's not stupid. No. He is a hands-on, intensely engaged political figure. This is a guy with, you know, phone always on, mm-hmm. on top of email. Every evidence is that he essentially runs his own campaign. He's... he's deep into, into it, because he loves politics. The notion that he's this sort of ignorant guy, always getting it wrong, always missing what's going on, it's simply impossible. It's not possible that he wasn't aware of the things that we're talking
0: about, and there is there is no uh, there is no uncertain terms here, is there, John? Ed, there is this affidavit was filed uh, by Robert Stelter, the investigator in the Milwaukee County District Attorney's office, who states, "quote I believe that there is probable cause to believe that Scott Walker, John Hiller, and Andrew Jensen, in concert together, committed a felony, i.e., misconduct in public office." This was a document, I believe, from two thousand and eleven. It has just come out in court filings. Now there is no there is no wiggle room here as far as he couldn't understand it or he interpreted it a, a different way, correct?
2: Well, it certainly doesn't seem it to me. Now, I, I think it's important, and you and I are both going to agree on this, uh, that the fact that you're a subject of an investigation does not make you guilty, mm-hmm. doesn't make you you know, a criminal, doesn't make you a bad player. Mm-hmm. There are innocent people who end up the subject of an investigation. Mm-hmm. But... That's not what Scott Walker said. Scott Walker didn't say, this is a witch hunt, this is unfair, mm-hmm. I'm not the subject of, you know, or I may be the subject of investigation, but I didn't do it wrong,
1: right. right? Right.
2: What he said was, he says no, 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 this isn't about me, you know. That's a very different game to play. And I think one of the reasons that he did that was because he was, in the midst of political campaigns, and he wanted to protect himself politically rather than just be frank about it. And two, I think that Scott Walker is frankly better than just about anybody in American politics at gaming the media, at counting on the media to take his absolute denial and give them the same treatment as the accusations the charges mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. rather than to get to the bottom of the matter to dig into it to actually figure out whether there's there's something something there and you know what the truth of the matter is it worked for him well it worked it worked to get him elected
0: it worked to get him over the, uh, uh, the recall election in 2012 did the media at the time and of course you are uh, a big part of the wisconsin media did the Wisconsin media uh, miss the story? Did they fall for it? Did they fall for Scott Walker's denials? Because I'm trying to figure out how, you know, they can come out with an investigation that ends up uh, uh, trapping, I think, uh, six different top officials and associates of Scott Walker's in the same investigation, and then he goes on to win not just the recall election in 2012, but then he goes on to win again in 2014. Did the Wisconsin media? miss this story somehow? Did they fall for Scott Walker's uh, schemes?
2: I don't think so. And I know it's easy to say that they did. The fact of the matter is that a lot of what I know mm-hmm. about this investigation didn't come out in newspapers, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel especially, which I think has done a you know, reasonably good job at mm-hmm. looking at all this stuff. But here's where the problem is. We live in a moment of incredibly downsized and non-influential media. Now I know that it's like, well, what do you mean? You know, we got the Fox News debate, and we got all this stuff like that. Donald Trump ought to be teaching you something. Mm-hmm. And that is that, you know, for all of the, the existence of old media and even the development of new media, social media, and all these things, we have such a cacophony right now. There's so many people in their own silos. We have so many newsrooms that have been downsized and diminished. Uh, we have so much fluff passing for news mm-hmm. that even when a story does get a little bit of a ride, even though it's present you know, in, on, a, on a daily newspaper or on a broadcast, it doesn't have the resonance that it used to have, say, in 1974 with Nixon and Watergate, or even, although it, it went awry, in 1986, 1987 with Reagan and Iran-Contra. And so what we have is a situation where a story can be reported from, but the sly politician, the smart politician knows, first, deny everything, because that'll get you a little bit of pushback right within media. Mm-hmm because our media is so scared and it's so weak. But two, go to your billionaire backers, get a huge pile of money, and go on television with a counter message. That's step two, right? Or go on television mm-hmm. with some other subject altogether. And then third, rely on the fact that your base voters live in asylum, mm-hmm. that they're going to listen to right-wing talk radio that's right. going to back you up, that they're going to listen to or read blogs and read, you know, information that's going to support you. And I really want to say, older politicians, a lot of them don't get that. They really don't understand. Scott Walker's not an old politician. He's 47 years old. Mm -hmm. He has been on social media since there was social media. He's had emails since he came to the legislature in the 1990s. I mean, this is a guy who really does understand how media works and how money in politics works. And frankly... I think that has allowed him to get away with things, to do things that other politicians wouldn't even imagine, to yeah. gain the process in that way. So it's not, you know, it's not that the media did a perfect job. Uh, there are flaws, there are mistakes, there's plenty to criticize. But there's something deeper going on here, and that has resonance for the 2016 campaign. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't understand how media and money works in politics today, you're living in the past. You're going to have expectations from another time. Scott Walker does not live in the past. He has no expectations from another time. He lives in the now, and there is powerful evidence that he has made it work for him.
0: You you bring you bring up a very troubling point, and the way you phrase uh, uh, your answer to this entire thing is: Listen, I'm I'm no uh, fan of Walker's policies. I suspect you're not as well. Uh, but what has been as disturbing about him for all of these years since he's taken office as governor is the fact that he simply seems to lie with impunity. As a matter of fact, the word sociopathic comes to my mind, to be frank, whenever I look at him. But what, you're, what you seem to be suggesting, John Nichols, is that this is a strategy. This is a tactic. He knows exactly what he's doing. And in modern politics in 2015, 2016, the answer is... Go ahead and lie because your voters are in such a bubble in Fox News, in right wing media, that that right wing media will support your lie. You can go ahead and lie with impunity. It's better to lie and keep your voters than to try to fight those charges in in some other fashion. I mean, is that what you're saying? Just is that the lesson here? Just just lie. You will get away with it no matter what the media uh, says or does these days.
2: Pretty close. But let me offer a little bit of hope for humanity.
0: <laughs> please do. Please do. <laughs> and
2: that is that when you live in the, in the context of an individual state, yeah. right, you're, it's much easier to game the system, especially a smaller state that doesn't have dominant media. And uh, that's very, very different, though, when you go to the national stage. Do you know? And you know all this, Brad, and I think most of your listeners do because they're really smart. In presidential politics, right, turnout is twenty, thirty, forty percent more mm-hmm. than in off-year elections. Mm-hmm. Dramatically larger than in off-year elections, right? Sure. So in presidential year, you might get to fifty-three, even fifty-seven percent turnout, something like that. In a non-presidential, you're looking at thirty-six percent turnout, thirty-five percent turnout, and you know how you really count everything. Mm-hmm. It's it's and so. If we understand that, what we know is this presidential politics gets an attention level that is dramatically higher than any local or state politics. And so the notion that you can, you know, that, that there are no rules, that we live in a, in a post reality moment, isn't quite true. There's, there's, some, there's some more complexity to this. Mm-hmm. But the core concept that you bring up, is a vital one. I don't call Scott Walker a sociopath. I don't call... I I, I dismiss all of those notions. I'm much more frightened by a possibility. I am much more frightened by the possibility that he is actually very socialized, that he is, in fact, the embodiment of where our politics is going.
0: That he knows exactly what he's doing, that this is... Uh, that that he knows he is lying, and he's okay with that because he's playing the numbers. He's playing the odds. And
2: it's it's the face of the next politics. That is, this combination of weakened media, supercharged money, um, silos, all the things we're talking about, that that it creates a new, and to my mind, very dangerous, politics. And I don't want to suggest to you for a second that it's just Republicans and just conservatives that might play this politics. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a politics that, you know, I think consultants and insiders find delicious. <laughs> find really interesting, right? Yeah. You can get caught out on something and just keep right on going.
0: But the, you know, but and the thing is, I don't see I don't see Democrats getting away with that. They can try. I don't see Democrats and progressives getting away with it. It seems like they have some shame at least and if they are called <laughs> on these things. Then, you know, they can't continue with it. Whereas these guys like Scott Walker, I mean, listen, the, the, the reason I had thought of you immediately when I read this story, and this was last week, this was just it broke just before the Republican debates. And at the time, you know, I w- from day one, I've been saying, uh, you know, the, the mainstream media has been misunderestimating Donald Trump. And I think I've been proven right in, in that case. But uh, I thought if Donald Trump uh, implodes at some point, and I don't know if he ever will, but if he does, you know, the, the, the base does not like uh, uh, Jeb Bush. And nope. Scott, uh, Scott Walker seems to have a lot of what Donald Trump has. Uh, and he's ex- so he's acceptable to the base in that in that fashion. And he's acceptable to the establishment. So it seemed like at least before the debates, he had a way into that nomination, um, you know, that now that's changed. The math has changed a little bit. You got Kasich, you got uh, Fiorina and some other issues. But do, if he finds his way through, if he can thread that needle, does this strategy of simply lying, of simply not telling the truth, while that works in off-year elections, while it works on Fox News, does does that work in a general election, Where you've got actual real media covering it? uh, Or or is this something that's untested and maybe we're about to find out?
2: So, I'm going to give you an answer you don't very often hear on radio. I don't know. (laughs) Because we are entering into uncharted territory. Right? Yes. We have a candidate in Scott Walker who knows how media and money works now. He knows to be there at the Koch Brothers event. Mm-hmm. Koch brothers like him. Yep. A lot of these billionaires really like him. They've poured money into his recall election. Uh, there's no question that the money saved him. He didn't win his recall election on, you know, his personality or his courage or the fact that he was, quote-unquote, unintimidated as his, the title of his uh, autobiography suggests. Right. No, he won it because he had overwhelming financial advantages. There's simply no question of that. And frankly, also, he won it because he and his people... Uh, play the margins of politics at every turn. And they're, they're hyper-political. They're hyper-engaged uh, in every aspect of it. So, yes, there are possibilities at the national level. I do think national media is more likely to call him out, that he's more likely to get caught out. I also think that the money in politics game could turn on him, because remember that one of his opponents, I, I don't think some Democrat's going to take Scott Walker down. If he starts to rise in the Republican race, I suspect it's one of his Republican opponents who will take all the things we're talking about here and throw it right at him. And so there, he is more vulnerable in a presidential race. But I go back, you know, in this piece that I wrote on, on Walker and what I call Walkerism, this new model, um, but, you know, I use a lot of quotes from John Dean, mm-hmm. the Watergate uh, hero, the White House counsel under Nixon. John Dean said a very interesting thing. He said... Scott Walker is more Nixonian than Nixon. Yes. Now, that's an important phrase. Yeah. He didn't say Scott Walker is like Nixon. Right. He understood being Nixonian as, as, a, as a reality, a measurable reality. He said Nixon, Nixon was sort of Nixonian. This guy's more so. Hmm. And why is he more so? Not because Nixon was a good guy, but because Nixon lived in the times in which he lived. A time defined by three television networks, you know, old school daily newspapers, very small expenditures mm-hmm. for campaigns, you know, in the scheme of things now. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, um, and so he didn't have the tools. He didn't have the possibilities that now exist. I think you have to understand this. I hope I don't sound, you know, too out there in suggesting this. It's sort of like one of those Star Trek episodes where. <laughs> You know, you get somebody from our time suddenly encountering all the tools of the starship enterprise,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and, and they're like, whoa, you got weapons that do that. You've got <laughs> medicines that do that. You've got machinery that, that you know, they're like, and, and a good person is like, wow, this is great. This is what a wonderful progress or blah, blah, blah. A not so good person suddenly starts to see a lot of possibilities that they didn't recognize before. We're 40 years on from Nixon. That's all I would suggest to you.
0: And, uh, and
2: we've got new tools and new ways to do politics. And when John Dean says that Scott Walker is more Nixonian than Nixon, I
0: think we should take him seriously. I, th- I think we should too, uh, John Nichols. I've got uh, just a, a minute or two here left, but there was uh, two points I want to get to uh, before I let you go. Uh, one. Uh, and, and I don't, actually I don't know how we cover either of these in two minutes, but I'm going to try. Uh, uh, Brian Murphy wrote a terrific and lengthy article yesterday at uh, Talking Points memo on the American Legislative Exchange Council and Scott Walker and sort of rounded up. A lot of the reporting about Walker's work for this group, for this group, Alec, going back for years, even before he became governor, be- uh, before he was a city executive of, of Milwaukee, uh, back when he was starting back when he was in the state legislature. And Murphy, who draws a lot of his excellent reporting from uh, Brendan Fisher and the other folks over at Wisconsin's uh, Center for Media and Democracy, we've had Brendan on many times here, uh, Murphy argues that Walker, were he to win the White House, would be really for the first time Alex Mann in the White House. And with all of that said, uh, and in a minute or so, can you explain? who Alec is, why that is so disturbing to so many folks who bother to look into it and look into this guy, and frankly, I think, how it makes him so different from all of the other Republicans that are running right now uh, for 2016.
2: Well, not entirely different, because John Kasich, who everybody's all excited about this Mm. week, -hmm. he's also a longtime Alec man.
0: Oh, that's true. That's true. You're right.
2: You can actually tell the story there. Uh, So, uh, understand that. And that's the way to understand it. We can do this in a minute. We can do it in another minute. ALEC is the so-called build mill, the operation that produces model legislation for all the states. Mm-hmm. So that no matter where you live, they've got, they've got the same cookie-cutter answer. Their legislation has historically been to make it easier to carry guns and to, to shoot somebody that you think is crossing you. And that those issues came to a head uh, with the Trayvon Martin case, mm-hmm. but with a number of other cases as well. Um, They have, in the past, advanced voter ID laws and all sorts of laws to make it harder to vote, uh, and they've been caught out on that. But the core thing that they do, I mean, the thing that they're steady on, because they actually abandoned some of the more controversial things along the way, is to rewrite the laws to make them 100% corporate, to make them completely generous to corporations. And that's deregulate, privatize, mm-hmm. take power away from the people and give it to uh, interests that are most reliant on, most responsive to corporations. ALEC is funded by corporations and it is funded by incredibly rich people like the Koch brothers. It puts them together with willing accomplices, i.e., state legislators who will do what they are asked to do. Why is this important with Scott Walker? Scott Walker's been aligned with Alec for a very, very long time, as Brennan Fisher and Bruce Murphy and others have have detailed. And here's the interesting thing. Here's the way to understand it. It isn't just Alec. It is this way of thinking. Scott Walker, when he gets power, downloads model legislation, Mm -hmm. downloads specific ways to do things that are vetted by corporate America, special interests, power structures, and the best way to understand that is that he got in trouble initially as a candidate for not knowing much about foreign policy. You don't hear him criticized as much on that anymore because he downloaded Dick Cheney's neoconservatism. Now he talks just like Dick Cheney. And so he's got an answer for every question. It's not something he's thought through well. It's not something where his answers are nuanced or, or frankly, even all that useful. But um, that's how the guy works. And putting somebody like that in the White House, I mean, you know exactly what he would do, yep. because he wouldn't wrestle with issues. He'd download and, and implement.
0: And I think what one of the things that's important to point out about Alec is that you know they they are not just a uh, a think tank. There's a lot of you know think no. tanks on the progressive and the you know Republican side that sort of put out policies and so forth. These are actually uh, corporate members who meet with. Actual legislators, actually, you know, they actually have meetings, they go on trips together and they actually work out the legislation, the stuff that used to happen in public in the legislature that people could watch, that people could debate, the press could write about. It's all now being done in secret between these. Uh, corporate lobbyists who don't consider themselves lobbyists because they're not, oh, they're not in the lobby. They're out in Hawaii meeting with uh, Scott Walker and a whole bunch of people in secret to write this legislation. So it shows up on day one, and they pass it on day two. That's what Scott Walker did with, uh, you know, he, he brought in the uh, privatization of the uh, prison system in Wisconsin years ago as a, as a legislator. It's different than anything we have ever seen, it seems to me.
2: It is, it is, uh, the way to understand it is, it literally asks politicians to stop thinking mm-hmm. about anything, but who gives them campaign contributions? Yep. That's, that's the bottom line. And, and you know, you, you're very generous, actually, in your description, in my view. <laughs> in Alec, they say, well, the, the politicians and the corporations sort the legislation out themselves. Right. Do you really think an entity that is overwhelmingly funded by the corporations, by these billionaires. Uh which legislators come in and then go out because legislators are transitory, they face elections, they retire, they move on to other offices. You really think the legislators are calling many shots there? I don't think they're I don't really Mm. think they're shaping the legislation. Yeah. I think the legislation is being shaped by the corporate lobbyists, by the special interests, and the legislators are simply taking it, sometimes without even reworking it at all, and implementing it in their state.
0: And I think there's you
2: take that to the national level? Yeah. That's an incredibly dangerous approach to governance.
0: Oh, oh it's terrifying, so and, and Ford, I think they're they're absolutely yeah. salivating. That's why I think the you know corporate interests are absolutely salivating to have a guy like Scott Walker in the White House. I think this would put him above and beyond so much of what we even saw with George W. Bush. I, I, that, that's one of the oh, things that I think is 90, very 80. different here. Yeah. Listen, one more point that I want to get to. Uh, we're really running out of time, but uh, I want to hit this, and I'll point folks to your article on it over at uh, The Nation Today. You happen to write it. We have been talking for the past several weeks about the, uh, the interruptions at uh, Bernie Sanders events, uh, Martin O'Malley event, uh, at uh, the Progressive Conference out in Phoenix, and then recently over the weekend up in Washington State by members of the Black Lives Matters movement or sympathetic to that movement one way or another. And it's made a lot of Bernie Sanders uh, uh, fans really angry. Uh, And, you know, I I think it's just fine because I think it's changed the way Bernie is now running his campaign. You're a great supporter of Bernie Nichols. uh, Bernie Nichols. Bernie Sanders over the years, uh, I've noticed John Nichols. Uh, And yet... You wrote, came out with an article today. We need activists to keep politicians honest. Just so I'm not the only one out there, uh, you know, not necessarily approving of the way it's being done, but glad that it is being done. Uh, g- g- give me some cover here, John, because I noticed you do so in your article today at the Nation.
2: It's not to give you cover. I'm sorry. I, I, I try to be generous.
0: Damn it, John.
2: Um, sorry, brother. But <laughs> here's what I say, and you, you say, you know, look. I don't endorse candidates. I'm not telling people who to vote for. Uh, But I've been very impressed with Bernie Sanders for Mm -hmm. a very long time. Right. I've introduced him. I've moderated forums with him. I've, you know, been around for a long time. And, And what I said in this piece is that history tells us politicians who are never challenged remain in their narrow sphere. They are reinforced by supporters, and they get the small vote that they started with. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit more, but they don't make that, that great leap where they actually become viable political figures. My view is that our great presidents, and frankly great candidates, historically, have faced very tough challenges. And I use this as the frame for my piece, A. Phil Brandoff, the great civil rights campaigner, mm-hmm. and remind people, that Randolph threatened to bring 100,000 African Americans to Washington, D.C. on the eve of World War II if Franklin Roosevelt did not integrate defense industries. Roosevelt and the people around him hated the fact that that was happening. They were furious at the threat from Randolph and the civil rights campaign. But Randolph and the civil rights campaign knew that if they didn't push then, The defense industries were not going to be integrated. They made their case. They forced the point. Roosevelt did an executive order integrating those industries. They did it again with uh, integrating the military in 1948. Harry Truman, at a point when Harry Truman was in a tough election campaign, they ticketed the Democratic National Convention. They put huge pressure on Truman. Truman issued the order. All I'm trying to say is that when we look back on it now, we like Roosevelt. he issued that order. Mm -hmm. We like Truman because he issued that order. What we should understand is that pressure from activists often makes politicians into what we like about them, Mm. what we respect about them. It doesn't mean that a politician starts out mad or that he's an evil person and suddenly or she suddenly becomes good. What it means is that pressure from politicians or from activists forces politicians and presidents even to step up, to do what, do what they should do, do what will make them more universal in their appeal. And if you understand what's going on as such, what you should realize is, or at least what I realize is, that this is a, this is a dynamic. This is a process. This is how politics works. Yep. And people shouldn't be at odds with one another. You know, you can get upset with a tactic or you can get upset with what somebody does on one day. But we should understand that there is a process by which those who seek public office become better. Yeah. Nobody finishes a campaign the way they start. And it's my view that what's going on here has actually made Bernie Sanders' his campaign a better campaign. And Martin O'Malley's campaign, a better
0: campaign. I completely agree. And uh, you write about all of that in your article at The Nation today. We need activists to keep politicians honest. Uh, John Nichols, always great to talk to, my friend. Really appreciate you uh, taking time out from your day in uh, beautiful northern Wisconsin uh, to be here with us. Let's do it again soon, sir. Anytime, my friend. Thank you, brother. John Nichols of The Nation. Okay, a quick break, and speaking of Bernie Sanders, we will be back with some very good news for Bernie Sanders fans. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please enjoy responsibly. <laughs> Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Well, as promised, some uh, incredibly good news for Bernie Sanders fans. Bernie Sanders surges ahead of Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. That's right. You heard me right. That fringe candidate that uh, the mainstream corporate media hardly ever even notices, despite the fact that he's drawing crowds of 28,000 more than any other candidate in the race down here in Los Angeles, up in Seattle and Portland, all around the country, really, uh, getting bigger crowds than everyone else. He is now leading presumptive nominee Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire. Uh, has uh, This is the front page of the Boston Herald today. Bernie Sanders has rocketed past longtime frontrunner Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, a stunning turn in a race once considered a lock. For the former Secretary of State, according to a new Franklin Pierce University Boston Herald poll, Sanders leads 44 to 37 percent among likely Democratic primary voters. The first time the heavily favored Clinton has trailed in the 2016 primary campaign, according to a poll of 442 granite staters up in New Hampshire. Now, this is a this is a real poll. This is not one of those online polls. This is a real poll. Conducted with live uh, phone interviews, both uh, landline and cells. Just 35% of likely primary voters say they are, quote, excited about Clinton's campaign, according to the poll. 44% are excited about Bernie Sanders. 51% of voters say that while they could support Hillary Clinton, they aren't enthusiastic about her White House bid. Sanders' rise has been meteoric, the paper goes on to say. The socialist senator trailed uh, Clinton by a 44 to 8 margin last March in the same poll. 44 to 8 he was losing back in March. And now he's winning 44 to 37. Just incredible. Uh, More than half of New Hampshire's likely Democratic primary voters say they view Sanders, quote, very favorably. At the same time, so there you go. There's some good news uh, that the media is continues to ignore. Maybe they won't anymore now that it's actually touching Hillary Clinton directly. Maybe we'll hear more about that poll and the surge that Bernie is uh, having around the country. In the meantime, on the other side of the ledger, uh, Trump continues to either stay where he was or improve since last week's Republican debate. For example, a poll released today shows Donald Trump nationally has nearly triple the support of his nearest Republican rival. (laughs) More than triple the support. Uh, This is an online survey. Uh, A Republican group, Echelon Insights, showed the uh, billionaire real estate mogul with 29 percent of the vote nationally among likely Republican voters. But what's interesting here has been the move after him, after Donald Trump. Former neurosurgeon Dr. Ben Carson came in second. What? Yes, with 10%. Marco Rubio and and uh, uh, former failed Hewlett-Packard CEO, Packard CEO's Carly Fiorina were tied with 9% each. And Scott Walker, Jeb Bush, all of those establishment favorites, they are beginning to slide a quick slide, not just in this poll, but in a number of polls.
1: Wow, that's, yeah. that's that's really I'm really shocked. I'm surprised at all that Ben Carson did so well in the polls after after that mm-hmm. debate.
0: Yeah, well, I know because he was
1: he was almost not even there. <laughs>
0: I know he was a yawn, and he made up some. St- oh, he he said uh, we we should torture, but we should do it secretly and not tell the world. Uh, maybe that's what got the uh, Fox News viewers so hot and bothered. This looks terrible for guys like Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and others, uh, you know, who who they thought, who Republicans thought, well, once Donald Trump somehow or another implodes and gets out, then we can get back to business as usual, get Jeb Bush in there, get Scott Walker in there. Uh, no, not as of now. If Donald Trump goes away, uh, you're looking at nominee Ben Carson or nominee Carly Fiorina at this point. Just incredible what's going on. On the Republican side of the aisle, terribly embarrassing for the Republican Party in general. Just amazing to watch more on that, no doubt, in the days ahead. I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation. Of course, my thanks to all of you for spending part of your day or night with us. Really glad to have you. Drop me an email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com or find us and follow us on the Twitters at TheBradBlog I'm Brad Friedman good luck world